listening to the Abide Podcast. To find out more about Abide, go to AbideChurchFL.com and enjoy today's message. Amen. You guys doing good? Hey, I just wanted to say something about next week. Um, I know next week a lot has been said about pastor appreciation, but I, I want to speak to it really quick because for me next week is about honoring the five years and all that God has done. So I really feel like for those of you that have been with us, you know, this started with 10 people down the road and God has just done, done so much above and beyond what we've ever imagined. So I want to invite you out to celebrate what the Lord has done. How many of you know it's important to celebrate what he has done? It really is. To those that steward well what God has given, he will give more to them. So sometimes that simply looks like coming into a room and saying, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. You could have chosen anybody, but you chose us. <laughs> Not me, us, together. So I want to invite you. My spiritual father will be here. He's going to be bringing the word. It's just going to be a beautiful time. And I just want to say this. As Pastor Tyler comes up, I really felt even during worship the fear of the Lord around what God is going to deliver to us today. When you approach the word in the right way, it gives power to the word. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And during worship, I felt like, I want to say this on the beginning so that our hearts can be positioned to receive. That this isn't a us versus them. Nobody's excluded from what God's going to release through Pastor Tyler today. This is a family affair. And as I was, as I was thinking, in Matthew 7, it says, keep on asking and you will receive. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. In the midst of the seeking, the knocking, the asking, God will deal with us. You hear what I'm saying to you? And so we want the fullness of what God has for all of us. Amen. Somebody say amen. We, need to, we want all of it. So in the midst of that, I just want to pray. Um, in the beginning, I'm actually going to pray. You want to come up, Pastor Tyler? I want to pray over Pastor Tyler, and I want to pray over all of us, even myself, that we would be able to receive today. Because I think the tactic of the enemy when we hear any kind of message like this is to think about somebody else and not ourselves. Like, oh, yeah, I know who he's talking about. And for, for all of us today, it's like, man, let's, re, let's position our hearts in a place of, God, I want to hear your word. Amen? So let's just stretch out our hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Pastor Tyler. We thank you for the anointing on his life, God. And we ask for every single one of us in the room, me, I'm asking for me, would you prepare my heart to receive your word? Would you prepare my heart? And the, this has just been a crazy week. With so many things in the midst of that, we want, to, we want to have tender hearts to receive your word. We want to honor your word. Your word is clean. It's pure. It transforms. It renews. So be with Pastor Tyler today as he delivers the word and help us to receive it. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. 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 Man, a lot of anticipation. I was just going to talk about how God wants to bless us. But no, I'm just playing. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> hey, we have, I'm so happy to be here, and uh, I agree with Pastor Gio, like, this is not directed to anybody, this message really was, if I'm just being honest, was formed in the furnace of my own heart. Like a couple months ago, the Lord led me to a place where I just realized I was probably not as close to him as I thought I was. And my friends make fun of me that I went through something I call a personal revival and they tease me about it. But like God dealt with me that week. I took a week of consecration and he dealt with me. And in that week, he birthed this message in me. And I just want to share it from the, the offering of my own heart to you. Amen. 
Oh, hey, it is going to kind of tie into the pillars of the house. Um, and so this week we're going to kick off. We may go back to family, but I want to talk about revival really briefly. I want to, what I want to do today, I want to talk about, give a quick, really brief teaching on revival. I want to talk about two spirits that resist revival. And then I want to talk, I want to end just on talking about the Lord. Is that okay? Come on. Amen. So revival, I mean, that word is kind of like a buzzword in the charismatic culture, right? Like everything's revival. And I'm cool with it. Like if you want to call, I grew up in a church in a very small town, 3,000 people. Like we had one stoplight in a McDonald's and we were grateful, okay? Our Walmart, like, you know, it was, praise God, it was the meeting place of all the high school students. It was amazing. Um, and so my church, what we, what I grew up realizing revival was, was a service on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And by Wednesday, you had eight people in the room, including the worship team. Like it just got less and less every day, amen? That's not the biblical view of revival. I mean, you can call it that. That's fine. I'm cool with it. Call it revival. But as God understands that revival is a part of his end time process in bringing out the paraclesia, the, the second coming of Christ, Revival is a part of God's plan to bring Christ back to the earth. We talk about this a lot in, in church, or you've heard it about the groanings and the birth pangs and all this sort of stuff. God, there's two things that are going to be happening in the generation of the Lord's return. And it's crazy. There's 150 chapters in the Bible about the generation of the Lord's return. There's 150 chapters where the Lord is describing what it's going to be like, what it's going to sound like, feel like. And two main things are happening. Birth pangs, great pressure, great tribulation, great trials. I'm sorry, you're probably not going to get raptured out before. It's just not going to happen. Like we can go to that on another day. But it's going to be great pressure and great, great trials. In the midst of that, God says in Joel 2, in the last days, I shall pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And that did not just become completely fulfilled in Acts 2. That was the beginning. It's a pouring. So as the days grow darker, the cup fills as his, with his presence. And so as the days grow longer, as Christ's return becomes nearer and nearer and nearer, Christ and Jesus, or God is continually pouring on his presence. And that looks like seasons of refreshing, the Bible calls it. Times where mass, so like usually, look at this water bottle, God's presence being poured out in Tampa and wherever a region, it's a slow trickle. It's a slow trickle and faithful stewards of his presence, of his word, of his commandments, allow that trickle to keep flowing because we can resist and we can quench the spirit. We can kink the hose. Everybody cool? We can do that. But every once in a while, it is his great pleasure to dump the bucket. <laughs> and it looks like the Welsh revival. It looks like Brownsville. It looks like Azusa. It looks like Toronto. It's like God saying, okay, I want to see what happens if I boom, and he dumps it. And what I believe about this scripture is it says that he is looking to and fro. This is a common theme throughout the Old and New Testament. Looking to and fro throughout the land of whose hearts are fully yielded to him. Why? He is looking for people to entrust his heart with. This does not just happen to anybody. God does not just pour out his presence upon anybody. He is looking for the shepherd boy in the back of the field. 
He's looking for the hidden ones who said, I will resign myself to know you, to seek your face, to know your ways. Man's plan is to pick the biggest, strongest guy who's actually fearful when the fear of the Lord comes upon him and hides behind luggage. God's plan is to pick a shepherd boy who slays bears and lions with stones and plays little love songs to Jesus. He's looking for people who he can entrust his heart with. And the unfortunate thing, and I just so agree with what Gio said. I'm going to say it one last time before. I'm not going to say it again. This is, this is directed at Tyler. This is directed at my wife. This is directed at Pastor Marcus especially. I'm just playing. <laughs> we are really good friends. Uh, the hard truth about this is there are going to be those people who the Lord looks over on the earth and he's going to say, not you. If he chooses someone, that means he doesn't choose another. And if he doesn't choose someone, then that means there's a reason behind it. And if you were a Calvinist, you would say, well, that's because he predestined you. No. He says, whosoever comes to me, any man that would come to me, Jesus died for the whole earth. Everybody has access to the narrow gate. Everybody. He doesn't say, the way is narrow and there are few who find it because I don't want them to find it. He just says there's just few who find it. But there are those who will find the gate. And so please don't hear like, well, I guess I'm just, no. The gate, the door is open. The door is open today. If you would behold him and you would say, yes, the door is open. And he could look upon you from heaven and say, ah, there's one like David in the back of the field. I can pour out my presence. And I believe it's not just people, it's communities, it's cities, it's regions. He's looking for this. God thinks regionally. He says the church of Laodicea, it's a city of Ephesus. He's looking for communities who are saying, God, come and I can pour out my presence. I want to be a part of a community, a burning one of Tampa, who says, God, you can pour out your presence here, and I will lay down my agenda. I'll lay down the things that I want. I just want more of you. Two spirits that would resist that flow, that would cause him to say, not yet, not yet. And it's not a not you, it's a not yet. Because God never discounts you for the rest of your life. He says, I still have things I need to do in you. It's not you, it's not yet. I, I, I have two, I, I'm only gonna be able to go on one, but I wanna mention one. The first one is the religious spirit. The crazy thing about the religious spirit is that they really do love the Lord. The sad thing is that they can pray an entire lifetime for a revival to come, and when it does come, they will persecute it the religious spirit will spend their entire life in prayer rooms on their knees crying earnestly. When revival really does hit their church, they will mock it, they will persecute it, they'll say it's flesh, they'll say it's the kundalini spirit, whatever. And it's because they have traded the love for the person for the love of the process, for the love of the, of the form. They've fallen in love with the form rather than the person. And in reality, when they're praying, whether they don't, and a lot of this, I'm being honest with you, this is what happened with me when the Lord dealt with me. A lot of this is subconscious. It's not on the forefront of my mind. A lot of it is I want God to come, but subconsciously I want him to come in the way that I'm comfortable. 
And when God does what God does, and does never, he never comes that way, he comes in the way that he wants to that's gonna grow you, it's no. Paul, we, we, we look at Paul before he was Paul, he was Saul. He was a Pharisee. He prayed from a young boy for the Messiah to come. This was like a part of his daily prayer. He had an earnest desire, Messiah, come, won't you come? Like, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And then he comes, and Paul says, kill him. It's because he fell in love with the form rather than keeping the eyes on the person. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but they speak of me. That's the religious spirit. Praise God. Um, this is the one I really want to hone in on today. And um, it's, it's really near and dear to my heart. The Lord spoke to me when I, when I first got called in the ministry. I had a prophetic word that kind of just downloaded to me that my wife and I would be used to awaken the sleeping giant that is the Church of America. This church that is slumbering, quiet, like just overweight, spiritually overweight, you know, lazy. That he would give me the, a mandate to join many other ministers to awaken that. So I just feel like a deep burden for this. And I want to talk today about the apathetic spirit. The spirit... And I feel like even more than a religious spirit, this spirit is encompassing like 70 to 80% of the church in America, an apathetic heart. If you were to ask this person, they would say, I believe God. They would say yes to all the things. I believe he's real. And they probably really do. I believe he's, he came. I believe he died. I believe he actually really is God. The problem is in between the belief or the, I would say the knowledge, and then the rest of it, there is no fruit. There's belief, but there's no fruit. And if you could sum up the apathetic spirit into one word, it would be meh. Only young people know what I'm talking about. It'd just be like, eh, just, I, don't, I just don't want to, do, you, can, you can be on fire over there, but I just don't, just don't, I don't, just let me live my life. And let me just say this from the outset. There is no super Christians and normal Christians. The same blood that bought the Apostle Paul, that bought Peter, that bought St. Augustine, that bought all the, 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 the saints that we know and love, bought you and bought me. Beyond that, the same spirit of Christ who, lives in, who lived in Billy Graham, who lived in all the, the people we love, lives in you. They did not get a special anointing of like God says, oh, one of my super apostles. Paul actually deals with this. There's these people who come into one of his churches and they're calling themselves super apostles, literally. And he says, no, there are no super apostles. There's just children of God. And so with the same spirit, the same blood that bought Peter and John and whoever bought me, then I am called to something great. Like you are, there is no super and normal. And a big part of the apathetic spirit wants this. It wants to accept Christ. It wants to go to heaven, but it wants the rest of their life to look exactly like it did before Christ. But maybe they just don't cuss as much. <laughs> now this is near and dear to my heart. Cause like I said, I grew up in a, a country town 
And if you were to, if you were to poll, I think we actually did this one time. We looked at the, um, the metrics of our town because we wanted to kind of figure out some stuff as a church. I was on staff there. And 85% of the town identified as Christian. And I'm just going to tell you that right now. That ain't true. Like 85% identified as Christian. But it was in the sense, and I can make fun of rednecks because I'm one of them. It would be like, well, I ain't no Muslim, so I'm a Christian. I ain't no atheist, so I'm a Christian, right? Please don't get offended. Um, there is a difference between professing Christ and living Christ, though. And these same people that I went to high school with that would go to church on Sundays because their mom and dad would make them, and they would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. It's, they were Christians in the same sense as they were Republicans. It was something to identify with, not something to be born into. And, and I would watch these people go to, go to church on a Sunday and then get drunk, sleep with their girlfriend, party, get in fights, curse, talk about the most profane things all throughout the week, and yet proclaiming Christ. And I want to say, no. No. Part of the problem, though, is it's not their fault. This is the, this is the product of seeker-sensitive Christianity. This is the product of, of, of cheap, watered-down grace. This is the product of just come. Jesus is your homeboy. He loves you how you are. He doesn't want you to change. Just come. No. Not because I hate you, but because one, I literally felt this. This is what the Lord told me. If like, he, he wanted me to speak on this, and then I had one word from him. He said, wake them up. Wake them up. Not in an angry way. My heart was literally broken all week as I was preparing this because I felt the reality that there are going to be, I would assume, probably a, a significant number, a significant number of people who one day will literally, and I need to say this, this is real. We have, the part of the problem, part of the problem is that we have, we have been so inundated in America with the Bible and with even the word God that it loses, its, it loses its thunder. It loses its quickening. There is a God. Take three seconds to really think about that. There is a God who doesn't sit. He's not like Marvel and Thor where he said he is God. It says of him that he breathed the stars meaning the vapor of his mouth, the most like mundane, lazy act a person can do is <sighs> stars came out. Stars are the most, the most powerful objects in the entire universe that can like, the, the gravitational pull crushes things. It burns things. It's just the <sighs> of his breath. He breathes them without even thinking. There is a God out there. He is out there somewhere. And there is a Jesus, and he is coming back. And my fear is, is that there are going to be so many believers. And they are going to stand before, this is really going to happen. In the same way that I'm holding my phone right now, and the reality of it, I can feel it, I can touch it, I can, I can sense it. One day, every single person who has ever been born will stand before this holy God who breathes stars and you will give an account for your life. That will really happen. It's not a joke. It's not a fairy tale. 
it's really, really, really going to happen. Jesus speaks often of this because I feel like his heart is burdened. He says, they're going to come, those who are going to come to me on that day. And they're going to try to enter in the kingdom of God. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. That's the scariest thing. Everybody's going to know who Jesus is on that day. Whether you didn't know him or you chose not to on earth, when you're standing before him, you're like, yeah, I get it. Like, I know you. The question is not going to be, do you know him? The question is, and he answers this in that scripture, he says, I don't know you. That's really going to happen. Like, I, I need this to really get rooted in our hearts. That is really going to happen. And part of cheap grace, it makes this into a fairy tale. We put this in the same category as Aesop's fables, as Humpty Dumpty, as, as Marvel, as whatever. This is real. People are really going to stand before him one day in the timeline of their life, and he is going to say, I don't know you, and they are going to spend eternity apart from him. But the door is open. The door is open. He doesn't do this because he hates you, because he doesn't love you, because he wants to punish you, because he chose from the beginning of time to not choose you. This happens because we don't choose him. And part of it, I feel this. I was talking to leadership this week about just the weight that's put on teachers or leaders in the ministry. Part of this, the blood is on our hands because we have fed people cheap grace, a cheap gospel that says, just come live your life however you want. That's not going to happen. I struggled with this for so many years because there, there's a scripture, well, a scripture says, any man, and I love this scripture, any man who would come to me and believes in me, he will be saved. And I'm like, Jesus. Because I would think about those guys I went to high school with, these country good old boys who their, their life, they profess the Lord, but their life looks nothing like him. And how can the God of the universe, like the one who makes the atmosphere tremble and like he says, Moses, you can't look at me. I will kill you. And he says, he, like Alan Hood talked about this in the conference, he literally plants his spirit into my body, into my soul, into my, I become one with him. How can that happen and my life look the same? One plus one don't equal three. And I'm asking the Lord, I'm wrestling with this scripture. I'm like, Lord, this doesn't make sense. How can somebody just believe that you were real? Lord, you said even the demons believe and they become saved. I was like, it doesn't make sense. And I was studying, I was looking at a commentary. One commentary said, it's actually a really bad translation. The better translation would be this. When it says believe in, the better wording would be believe on. And even more than that, it would be like this, like you're in a high stakes poker game and the chips are not $100, even $20,000. The chips that you have in front of you are is your entire life. It is your life. And when he says, those who believe on me will be saved, the, comment, the, the, the scholar says, it's better to say like you were pushing all of your chips of your life going all in. I go all in on Christ. You see, belief and faith are different. 
I can believe that a chair is there and it's real and it holds me up or whatever. Faith lets me sit down in the chair. So many Christians are walking around today believing, and they really do believe, but there is no faith there. Faith says, I will put action to my belief. I will put action to my belief. And this is what the Lord was showing me in all humility and all love and tenderness is that really there is like a lack of belief that this is real. Many people come to church. Like I, I would ask this in, the, in, my, in my last city I lived in. It's like, hey, are you a Christian? And the common response would be, yeah, I go to church. <laughs> That's the problem. Is when we, we connect identity in a holy God to someplace you are on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Like, bro, this is a covenant, a blood covenant that will last for a millennium and beyond. This is not just about coming to church. This is something deeper than that. Mm. I want to, Matthew 13, we don't have to go there. I'm just going to kind of breeze over it really quick. It's the parable of the sower. And this is one of the, the, the things that the Lord was showing me, that one of the things that the sower throws out seed and it lands on rocky soil. And it says it shoots, it puts down little roots and it shoots up really quickly. Like it makes a plant come up really fast. But it says because there was no root... There was no grounding. There was no digging in to something deep. It says the birds come and they pick it away. And the disciples ask like, Lord, what, is, what does this mean later on? And he says, because there was never really a grounding, a digging in, a planting my life into the soil of Christ. He says, when the trials and tribulations of this world come, they will fall away. Our problem is that in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, China, that process of the cooking, the, the planting, the shooting up, and then taking away because the trials of the world, that could probably happen within a couple weeks, months, or whatever, because they actually have real, real trials. The problem in America is we're so sheltered, I believe that process can last years or decades. And people can sit and warm a pew, and there's no root, but there's a view, there's a appearance of Christ. There's a, it kind of looks like it, but eventually a trial is going to come. Something's going to happen. And that's when we see people are like, my whole world is falling. It's like, I don't know if you were ever really rooted, but the door is open. I want to, I want to keep the door is open. Good soil is just around the corner. If you would say, Christ, I love you. I will submit everything to you. It's here. The door is open. You don't have to sit there and get your, your life taken away and everything crumble. The door is open. Um, two ways. I, two, there's two types of apathetic spirit. and one, The one we've been talking about already a lot. It's the person who you would probably say if you were honest with yourself, and part of the problem is we lie to ourselves so much we never actually get to the truth, is that for the vast majority, if not all of your Christian life, 
it has been like this. It's just been like, I just don't, I just don't, just don't make me do that. Just like, you go, pastor, you go do that. I'll stay over here. I'll even give money to the church. I'll come once a month, the church, whatever you need me to do. Just, I don't want to do that. Just let me live my life. There's that one. And I would say to that person, in love and like, seriously, I, I felt a burden all this week is that Christ really wants to meet you today. Like he loves you. And we're gonna end talking about the Lord and why we even really love him and what makes him the fairest amongst 10,000. Cause this is not a like scared out of hell. This is, you don't become saved by running from something. You're saved by running to something. And let me just say this about, cause I don't want anybody to get hung up on works or deeds. Cause like, it sounds like you're talking about works a lot here. <laughs> Works don't get you into heaven. But when heaven comes in you, it will produce works. And so when I look at a person and I don't see works, I say there must be no heaven. Christ said the same thing. He says, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a tree will produce fruit. So works don't get us into heaven. It's like the cluster gauge on my truck. It doesn't cause my engine to run but it will tell me if my engine is running and if it's running well. The engine is the faith. The works are just the cluster gauge. This is, I'm sorry, but this is how it works. No pun intended. Like it just is. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't have any good works. You're like, what is works? A desire and earnest desire for the Lord. A desire to be in his presence. And, and like I, we get a lot of times hung up on just your morning devotional time, which you do need to have that. I'm talking about like, a yearly after yearly, monthly, getting better for your wife, like being, existing more the fruit of the spirit. If I could say works is anything, the works is just the fruit of the spirit, like Christ producing himself in you. And if you're like, I'm, if I'm being honest with myself, I'm really about the same as I was 20 years ago when I got saved, I would say reassess. Gio said this last night, consider your ways. Like, it doesn't make sense if the God of the universe living inside of you over 20 years has produced nothing. Consider there's an open door today. He wants to meet you. The second apathetic spirit would be someone who is actually on fire for the Lord. I would have put myself in this category a couple months ago. You've been on fire. You've burned like deep. You've wept over the scriptures. You've been the person, whatever. And yet you find yourself today numb and cold and just feeling nothing. And it's just like, I just don't want to be here. Like, ugh, I just, just let me, just let me live my life. But at one point in time, you really did burn. And this person is like Abraham. God gives him this promise of Isaac. And yet in the, in, in the time of waiting, pain and lies creep in. Amen. Anybody been there in the time of God's seemingly absence lies and, and, and pain creep in. And in that place, if we don't steward our heart, right. If we don't, when, when, when things happen in our life and we're like, man, God, I thought you were supposed to cover me. I thought I was supposed to be protect. I thought I was your child. And yet this happened to me immediately the accuser comes in and says, you're an orphan. He doesn't love you. 
And so in that place, we then shield ourselves from the Lord. We say, I, you are not to be trusted. Just like a spouse or a friend who wounds us, you know, husbands, wives, you know what I'm talking about. When your spouse wounds you and you put up a wall that says, I won't go there. Some of you are even like, I just won't speak to you for a while. You need to feel this. We do that with the Lord. And we say, I'm going to hide myself. I'm going to protect myself from you. It's protection. Abraham and, and, and Sarah become so wounded with God that they hide themselves and they actually try to fulfill the God-shaped dream hole in their heart through Ishmael. And this is where a lot of people are at. You've burned for God, but things are gonna happen, bro. Just trials are gonna come. And yet if we don't stay tender and just say, God, I wanna find myself in the shelter of your wings. You're a strong tower. You have offended me somehow, but I'm going to run towards my offense. I'm going to run towards the person who is good for me. If we don't do that, we will, create, we will distance ourselves. We will put a blocker. And then what happens is over time, days and months and weeks and years, it's like layers of dust fall on our heart. And you find yourself 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, after that offense you've forgotten about, you don't even know what it was, and your heart is dusty. And you walk into places like this, and you're like, I feel nothing. I wept at one point, now I'm dry and I'm cold and I come to church a couple times a year just to do it because I have some minor conviction. Conviction is always the last thing to go. Love is the first. And God is saying, if you would come to me, if you would come to me, just like I did for the disciples after I was dead and I resurrected and I came and I walked in and their hearts were dusty, I... I blew on them and I blew the dust off. If you would come to him today, apathy is not your portion. Your dreams, that not God's dreams for you that he birthed with you in the secret place are still alive in Christ. They are still alive in heavenly places. They are for you. If you would come to him and say, God, would you blow upon these weak, tiny embers of my heart? He would blow on you and say, come alive, wake up. And you would be restored. The enemy wants to say, no, that's not real. Just stay back. It's not, it's, that's, that's performance, whatever. He wounded you. He's going to do it again. Ignore that joker. He's a liar and he knows his time is coming. All right, I don't have much time left. I want to talk about Jesus. Because the, the antidote for this is not me yelling. <laughs> the antidote is for you seeing the face of Jesus. The antidote for an apathetic heart is gazing upon the one who is more beautiful than 10,000s. And there's two options. I'm just going to say this at the forefront. There are two options that happen when you gaze upon his face. Either you share in the burning of his eyes or you allow your heart to be hardened even more. It is possible. Nothing in God is like you will. There's always two trees in the garden of your heart. Always a choice. And so even in the beholding of his face, 
There is an option. There is an opportunity, albeit it's harder. There's still an option to say no. But I would hope and I'm praying, I'm praying all week that God would shine his face upon your heart and you would come alive. Let's talk about Jesus. Talk about why we love him. I want to start in the upper room. Jesus, it's like the night, a couple days before his betrayal, before his crucifixion, and he finds himself, it's Passover time in the upper room. He tells the disciples to go up to the upper room and to prepare a table. And so they get up there and the disciples are getting ready and Jesus, the last person to walk in. And I wanna show you that what's about to happen is literally God's plan for humanity. Like Jesus demonstrates in almost a human video, if you will, God's plan for all of creation, for all of humanity. Disciples are seated, Jesus comes in and it says, he takes off his outer garment. Paul says when Christ came to earth, he emptied himself of all his godliness. He, he put aside his godliness. Jesus is demonstrating, I take, out, I take off what has identified me as powerful and as rabbi and as whatever. I I'm taking it off. I am becoming vulnerable. Jesus and the disciples are like, what's happening? Why is he not sitting down? Why is he not ruling and reigning and doing the things? Jesus takes off his outer garment. What does he do? It says he walks over, I imagine, to a table for the servants. And there's a cloth, a, 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 a cloth that you would wrap around your waist. It would tie behind and it'd just be down here and it'd be a thing for the servants. And Jesus goes over and like the scriptures tell us, he puts on flesh. He puts on the form of a servant. He's literally reenacting his entire life. Jesus puts on the servant's garment. And the disciples are like, what in the world is happening? This man just raised Lazarus not too long ago. He, like, why is he putting on servant stuff? And then he proceeds to walk around the table. And with a basin of water, because you've heard this story many times, that their feet were disgusting walking in sandals and he kneels down to every single one of them with his little servant's garment there. And he begins to wash the feet of his disciples, even the one who would betray him. And in the washing, he takes water and throws it on their feet, sprinkles it on their feet. The washing of the word lifts sin off of our heart so that Jesus in his body can come and wipe it away. Jesus is literally showing them what salvation looks like. He says, I will throw my word, the washing of my word out. Your, your, your being will respond. It will lift the sin off. And then I will take the cloth represents his human body that in just a couple hours time will be beaten and marred and disfigured. And he says, I will use that to wipe it away. What's funny is the dirt doesn't fall to the ground. It is transferred from their feet to his body. Every disciple that Jesus would walk around and wipe and wash their feet, he looks a little bit more dirty. And by the end of it, when he gets to Peter, I imagine, Jesus is disgusting. He looks gross. He is so dirty and his, the cloth is black. And he says, Peter, I need to wash you. 
And it's like his heart is to wash you. And Peter says, Lord, if you, I, I can't allow you. And, he's, and just to further, to, to further prove this is what's happening, he says, if I don't do this, you have no part in me. This is what I've come to do, Peter. You think it's the ministry. You think it's the works. You think it's whatever. It is I have come to reconcile you to me. Today, the door is open. Like he is sitting there with a towel on his waist. He's saying, let me wash you. Let me wash you. Peter in Peter fashion goes, wash all of me. He's like, bro, chill. And what happens after all of them are washed and Jesus transforms back into his priestly robes is now they can enter into the marriage supper of the lamb. That entire scene is salvation is the entire story arc of redemption. Later on, I want to just continue to gaze at Jesus. Is this okay? I love talking about the Lord. Something happened probably a year or so ago in a prayer room where the Lord like, took hold of me and had me recount the story of his crucifixion. And it has been like one of the most powerful moving moments of my life. There's something happens when you gaze upon his beauty and you gaze upon the one who gave his life for you. It just, you can't stay the same. Like every time I look at him in that context, I become a little more like him. Not too long after that, Jesus is taken in the middle of the night illegally and he's taken into this temple and all these Pharisees are there and they're questioning him, questioning him, questioning him. And let me just say this. Jesus says this. He, said, he died according to the scriptures. That's what Paul says. He died according to the scriptures. So everything in Jesus' life, especially his death, was done according to the Levitical law, according to the scriptures. So when he was giving the Levitical law to Moses, he was really saying, this is what I'm going to walk through one day. He says, this is, it's not about lambs and goats. It's about a man who would be the perfect sacrifice for humanity. He laid out his death sentence thousands of years before. He's standing in this temple and they're questioning him and questioning him. And eventually they say, are you the Christ? And he says, I am. And in that moment, a Pharisee takes his hand, which Jesus created, by the way, and strikes the face of God. He struck God. And I want to say this, because sometimes when we think about the crucifixion story, we, t we, we place ourselves in the position of Mary, the person weeping, who's sad for Jesus. I want to say this to you. You're not Mary. You're the Pharisee. We're the villain in that story. Before Christ, we are the ones who crucified him. The beauty of the story is that Jesus on the cross looks down and says, God, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. That's me. That's you. You're not, you're not exempt from this. You're not the faithful follower standing to the side. No, before Christ, you are the villain. And yet, in our sins, Christ died for us. He strikes the face of God. Jesus' cheek is bruised by a hand that he created. Like, this wrecked me this week. Like, that he would create someone. When he, that Pharisee, whoever he was, there was a point in time in heaven that God was creating him and he dreamt over him. 
we think of Pharisees as evil, like villains, like the Joker or whoever, something like whatever. God dreamed over that man in the womb. He had compassion. He had ambitions for him. He had prophetic things for his life. And at one point that man would strike him and Jesus would turn to him with eyes of love. Later on, God, Jesus, this is another thing. We have become, the name Jesus has become so, I don't know how else to say it, but neutered in our language. He's not God's messenger. He's not God's nephew. He's not a, pro, he is God. Jesus is God. The same one who sits like God, the Holy Spirit, and G the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are three distinct, unique beings, but they are one. He is God. And so everything that I'm about to tell you happened to God. It did not happen to God's puppet he put on earth. It happened to him. God laid down his life. Jesus is taken from that place. What's crazy is I said he, everything happened according to the scriptures in, the, in Leviticus, the priests would have gone to every lamb, every goat that is to be sacrificed for the sins of the community. And he would have placed his hand on the head of the goat of the lamb. And through that act, it was a prophetic picture of the sins being transferred. Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures, but every beat, every time, every moment, every prophetic act happened in the worst and most humiliating way possible. So instead of one of the, he, the Pharisees putting his shoulder on Jesus to transfer it, he strikes him. Lightly on the lamb, striking the face of God. The prophetic act of the sins transferring. Later on, the, the, the Jesus is before Pilate and the priests are standing there. And he's saying, I don't want to crucify him. They're saying, crucify him anyways. And then the priest says something so remarkable. He says, let his blood be on us and our children. He did not know what he was saying. He is literally asking for the blood of God to be transferred to, to the sins of men. Jesus is taken from that place to probably one of the most gruesome parts of the entire crucifixion. He's taken to get flogged. And the passion of the Christ gets close, but not even close enough to the gruesome act of what happens. Jesus is taken to the middle of the square, much like something like this. He's tied to a post and then Roman citizens with a cat of nine tails that has bone, metal, porcelain, all this sort of sharp things would be jangling them and they would whip him. And when it went into his side or his back or his leg or his face, it would implant and then they would pull it out because it would get stuck and they would pull it out and coming from it would, would come bone, flesh, organ, and it God, literally God's body would be slung upon to the crowd. And the blood of God would be slung onto people across the square. And I felt the Lord tell me something and reveal something as I was just recounting this this week and allowing it to hit me and affect me. Is that within this moment, he's still God. Anything he wants to do, he can do. He can do anything. If he wanted to call down a legion of angels, he says this. He says, I can call down legions of angels if I want to. He could have done it. 
he even could have caused his body to stop feeling the pain. He could have said, you know what? I know I need to do this, but there's no reason for me to feel the pain. I'll just die. And so it'll appear like I'm being hurt, but I really won't be hurt because this is really awful. And we know Jesus agonized over this from the Garden of Gethsemane. But I heard the Lord tell me something this week as I was just pondering this. He says, I chose to feel every lash. I could have chose not to, but I chose. And I just see every time he's whipped, he's bruised, he's kicked, he's beaten, the crown of thorns placed upon his head to where the thorns literally scratch into his skull. He's looking at his beaters and he's saying, I choose to feel this. I choose to feel this. I'm not going to hide myself from your pain. I'm not gonna hide myself from what this should have been happening to you. I choose to be present in this moment. Christ eventually comes and he's taken off the thing. He can barely walk. What's crazy is so many scientists and scholars have looked at the count of the beating and the crucifixion and they would say it's physically impossible for this to happen to a normal human. So if God used any of his power, it would have been that he would be preserved so he could experience the fullness of the torment. It says he should have been dead by the time he got to carrying the cross. Through physical exhaustion, blood loss, God kept, I'm convinced that Jesus kept his own life going so he could go to the fullness of the cross. That's the one you love. You're like, why should I give my heart to him? Why should I do anything other than just kind of like, meh, that's why. It's because that man sits in heaven right now. It says they took him and they put him on a cross and they took massive nails and they nailed it through his wrists and through the tops of his feet. Naked, it literally says in the scriptures that, that the priest would tear this, the flesh of the lamb and likewise in Jesus, the most humiliating way, they would tear his clothes and make him naked. Completely bare for all the world to see God stands upon a pole like the snake in the desert. That any man who would look upon him shall be saved. That any man who would look upon him and say, you are my Lord, shall be saved. This is why the centurion, when he dies, he says, surely he was the Christ. In typical God fashion, Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Like he was fully man, but nobody's taking God's life. And so Jesus, in a wild act, literally dies, commits himself to death. Immediately, he descends into hell. This is where the story gets good. He kicks the devil in his teeth. That's how my version goes. And he says, give me my keys. And he takes the keys of death, hell, and the grave and rents and, and, and bankrupts hell. He goes and preaches the gospel to everyone who's ever died before him and says, I am the Christ. Choose me and you will have new life. And then three days later, he rises out of another person's borrowed tomb to appear to his disciples. This is why we love him. It's because he's not saying the, the, the narrow gate is narrow because I don't want people to find it. He's saying the door is open. And any man who would come to me and say, I choose you, Jesus, he shall be saved. It's, 
is really real. This is true. Everything I told you. It's not a fairy tale. Cove, you can come up, buddy, if he's still here. There he is. It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It's not fake. It's not like whatever. 2,000 years ago in Israel, God was crucified. And he longs to live in your heart. And he looks at you with the same eyes that he looked upon those Romans who beat him and saying, I choose to feel this. I will choose to feel every beating that you go through. I will knit myself so tightly to you that I will feel your pain. So there is no room for apathy in the face of Jesus. Do you hear me? There's no room for apathy in the face of Jesus. Would you guys stand? I had a couple things I wanted to pray for this morning. I know this was a bit heavy, but I just felt this. I, I don't want anyone to be standing before the Lord one day. It's got to be the most scary thing is to think for 80 to 70 to 90 years of your life even that the end is going to look a certain way and you find yourself in the culminating moment of your life and he says, I don't know you. I don't know you. I just don't want, I, I, I want people to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, I loved that one. I knew him. We have history together. I remember. Do you know this? That when you get to, this, get to heaven, the Bible tells us that Jesus will tell the Father the stories of your life together for eternity. Jesus will look at the Father and say, hey, this one time, <laughs> his power went out because a hurricane hit and he prayed and he says, God, I choose to have a cheerful heart. He says, God, he says, Father, I remember that. I love him for it. I want to I pray for a couple things. Um, first, if you're sitting here or you're standing or whatever, and you're like, I don't know if I've ever really been to that place where my heart burned for God. Maybe you were like me and you were raised in an environment where just church was cultural. It was familial. It was just kind of something you did, but you've never really felt God like living on the inside of you. And you're like, I want to meet the man with eyes of fire. I really felt the Lord wants to touch you this morning and the door is open. The door is so open. If that's you, if you're like, I would love to meet Jesus today and start a new life with him, would you just come forward right now? I just feel this, like the Lord wants to meet people for the first time. If that's you, you can come forward. While you're praying, I had a couple other things. If you have been struggling with an apathetic heart, if you've been struggling just kind of apathy towards the Lord and just not feeling it, 
Maybe you would be that first person or the second person where you used to burn, but now you're not burning. And you're like, I long to feel him. I don't even know what it is, why I don't. And maybe you do know, maybe you're like, he wounded me. If that's you, I just feel like the Lord wants to blow on the embers of your heart this morning and say, come alive, come alive. So I'm gonna pray. And if that's you, if you, either one of those altar calls you, you, you wanna respond to, I just wanna make it open. And I'm really believing that you will leave here even more burning than the first time you burned. That your heart will be burning even brighter. He wants to meet you. The door is not closed, the door is open. So Father, right now, any heart, any heart, God, that is, is burdened, is dusty, is apathetic, is just feeling far from you, any heart, God, you would reconcile. Any child, God, who would say, I have never, I don't know if I've ever really known him, but I want to. He sounds amazing. God, that they would respond. Their hearts would be yielded towards you. Jesus. I want to pray for one other thing and then I'll let Pastor Gio or any one of our staff kind of lead here. I want to pray if you have a family member or a very close person, a spouse or whoever who is struggling with their relationship and you've been praying, I want to pray for encouragement today that God Paul talks about this, that if your spouse is not pursuing the Lord, but you are, they shall be saved through you. Your faith, God will flow through it like a river. So I just wanna encourage, and if that's you, because I know that's a hard burden to carry, you don't have to come forward, you don't have to raise your hand. I just wanna pray a prayer for you right now. If that's a child, if it's a spouse, a mom, a dad, a family member, whatever. In the name of Jesus, we just speak life right now. In the name of Jesus, life, life, life. That everything dead would come back to life in the name of Jesus. That you would resurrect every dead thing. Everything where the life looks like it's completely gone. Every hopeless situation. Come back to life right now in the name of Jesus. Every son, every daughter, every husband, wife, mother, father. Lord, right now you would captivate their heart captivate their heart in the name of Jesus.